Community conversations are part of a larger engagement event that we're working to involve the community so that um, the themes of the film can soak more deeply into our communities. And um, you may remember back in February, we talked about some of the themes of the film, including black excellence and trauma, bridging the gap, and also not being a bystander when it comes to art and activism. For this conversation, we're, we're springboarding off of that last theme to think about how art can motivate social activism. Uh, we want, like the title of this event suggests, we want this really to be a, a two-way conversation. So throughout um, our conversation with the panelists, please remember to be submitting any questions that you have for the panelists in the chat um, button, and we'll make sure to spend ample time at the end of the event talking through these conversations um, and giving uh, time for the panelists to answer your questions. Um, with that, I welcome our moderator for today's conversation, Mark Frere, who is the director of Dane Arts to the screen. Thank you so much, Dane Arts and Mark, for your support um, of artists in our community and your support of Brave Bird and Trace the Line. Um, Dane Arts has a long history of uh, supporting the arts, um, as, as Mark will allude to. Um, in the summer of 2020, when the pandemic was taking its toll um, and um, many artists were um, uh, affected in, in, the, in, most, in the most great way, uh, Dane Arts started the Dane Arts Need Grant, uh, abbreviated DANG appropriately, to uh, support the artists with over a hundred grand. Um, and they upped the ante in 2021 and secured uh, over a million dollars in the COVID relief funds to support over 400 working artists. Um, DANG has supported over 33% of artists of color in our community. Um, so I'll hand it off to you, Mark, to uh, talk a little bit more about your efforts and uh, kick off this conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you, Noelle. I appreciate having the opportunity to be a part of Trace the Line, which is a beautiful movie about humanity and the impact in our community. And the beauty of Trace the Line for me is really that it's local and that you can see the results of so much going on during 2020. But Dane Arts rests in the heart of county government, and it has the pleasure of serving within the executive office. I have the pleasure of reporting directly to County Executive Joe Parisi, who I haven't seen since February of 2020, um, but I appreciate the opportunity that he's allowed me to really advance the work that we're trying to do in our communities. Dane Arts is about the arts, history, and culture of Dane County, and it's my job to continue to raise the visibility of the arts across disciplines, to show the economic, cultural, creative, and community impact the arts generate across all arenas. And it's the reason 72% of corporate America CEOs uh, ask for two critical skills in their employees. They want them to be innovative and creative. I have an MBA from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in finance, and there's nothing creative or innovative about finance unless you want to be creative and innovative, but I don't suggest that. Uh, our role is really about developing the work and supporting and supporting the work of independent working artists and arts organizations, as well as bring value to our communities. So I welcome this opportunity to present to you the panelists who are going to discuss uh, equity and issues related to the arts and what I call artivism, active, activism by artists in our community, uh, and the creations and innovative work that they achieve on a daily basis. But in 2020, as Noel said, we hit the pandemic that impacted everybody. And But what did everybody turn to during this time? They turned to music, dance, theater, film, streaming all kinds of work online and finding ways of making sure they could stay sane through this practice of really witnessing the arts full force. And in 2020, with the pandemic here in Madison and Dane County, we saw an extraordinary lift of creativity and innovation through online streaming and many, many artists 
struggling to make ends meet, we're still creating work. That's the beauty of what, what we have in Dane County. People are not moving to Dane County to be a part of some legal enterprise or to deal with the financial advisors so much. They're moving to Dane County for three reasons the lakes, the parks, and the cultural arts. So I can't emphasize enough that it's the arts that are really an economic driver in our community and having an impact throughout the work that we do throughout Dane County. But I am thrilled to have these three panelists with us and I want, I'll want i let them introduce themselves, Gregory Hatton, uh, Zach Brandon, and Alex uh, Miranda Cruz about the work that they're doing and we'll go into some questions in a few minutes. So, Mr. Cruz. Thank you so much, Mark. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be with you all today with Zach and Greg. Um, uh, just a quick note, I am chiming in from Portugal today. <laughs> so if you hear any strange sounds, specifically bells, uh, it's because I'm in Portugal. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Alejandro Miranda Cruz. I go by Alex, uh, by my friends. And I'm the screenwriter and director for Trace the Line. And um, I also co-run um, our studio called Brave Bird um, with my wife who you met, Noelle Miranda. Um, and the two of us uh, are striving to transform the way diversity and females are depicted in, in media. Um, in 2020, uh, we weren't planning to make Trace the Line and uh, COVID happened. We were supposed to be in Europe. We were supposed to be doing a lot of commercial work um, none of that happened. We lost 90% of our work, and uh, it was a very precarious time for all of us. Um, and as I was sitting in my patio, looking at the trees blowing in the wind, I saw a vision for Trace the Line. And I reached out to my friends, Greg Hatton, who's joining us here today. Um, I met Greg at the American uh, Society of Cinematographers, um, where we, we got to learn some cinematography from some of the best uh, filmmakers in the industry. And uh, I just couldn't think of anyone else better to help me tell the story than Greg. And um, and then I reached out to my friends, my artist friends, um, Matthew Charles and Brooke Leland, um, as well as Amadou Chroma, who's a local photographer. Matthew is a spoken word artist and Brooke is a visual artist. Um, I shared this idea with them and um, they both said no at first because they've never made a movie. And they they just weren't sure if they could um, perform at, at the level that that needed that you know that we would need them to perform at. Um, but we did work with them, and and I shared with them this idea of producing a film that incorporates fictionalized versions of themselves, so they didn't have to really try to be another character, um, although the story is is fictional. And we did collaborate with the artists um, in the film, in the writing, in the development of the story. And many of the of the art depicted in the film is is from their commission work, as well as work that they did before the movie. So um, Trace the Line is a very meta film, um, a, a meta art film. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us this evening. I'm so grateful uh, to be here. Uh, just one more thing I want to share uh, regarding Brave Bird uh, and Trace the Line. We've been working on a methodology of filmmaking called Cinema Dignité. Um, Cinema Dignité is, is a methodology that Noel and I have been developing over the past uh, several years now. And the goal is really to uh, infuse more diversity into how films are made, how they're told, not only in front of camera, but behind camera. We want to see more diversity from the top, bottom, and bottom up. 
I am originally from Los Angeles. I grew up in the entertainment industry. I was a professional actor for over 15 years. And for that time frame, um, I was uh, cast typed for delinquent roles. And I always thought that there was so much more that we can do. Um, and, and specifically being more authentic and bring more dignity to the screen, specifically how we depict diversity. And so with Brave Bird, that's really a passion of ours now is, is to really uh, transform the narrative, evolve cinema, evolve filmmaking, and to uh, infuse it with more diversity. Uh, thanks for joining me. And uh, I'll just pass it on to Greg. Hey everybody, uh, my name is Greg Hatton. I'm born and raised in Los Angeles, California, and I'm a photographer and cinematographer for the movie uh, Trace and Line. Um, I really, you know, I, I, I love the opportunity that we had to make this film um, simply because it was an opportunity to use art to say something when it mattered most. Uh, and that was a, a beautiful opportunity that Alex and, and Noel presented us with. Um, a little bit about me and my background. I come from, um, like I said, Los Angeles, California. I was, you know, raised in a single parent home and I actually started my pro professional career in the motorsports industry. And I was one of the only African-Americans to try to navigate that whole terrain. Um, and it was kind of weird. It was probably like five or six of us, like globally that I knew about. And, um, you know, it just was not, I don't want to say it wasn't welcoming, but it was very difficult to be around or trying to do something that you enjoyed in an environment that was so foreign to you or anything that you were raised in. So um, by doing that, I, I kind of learned more of who I was and what I was capable of doing. And it opened up my eyes to the reality of life in a lot of different ways, not just in motorsports, but just in the ability to experience more just by having that kind of exposure to more. And uh, since that point, I really try to champion that and pretty much everybody that I come across through everything that I do with work, with photography, with cinematography, to just showcase what's possible. Um, you know, if, if you just have the, the audacity to kind of push into it. And, um, but yeah, the, the filmmaking process is a beautiful process and I'm really excited to talk to you guys about it today. And Zach, you're on. Great. Thanks, Greg. Uh, my name is Zach Brandon. I'm the president of the Greater Madison Chamber of Commerce. I moved to Madison 20 years ago uh, to put a business here. Um, had small children, young children, um, and was uh, just overwhelmed by the, the place. It was the first time I ever called a place home um, because I moved a lot as a child. Um, I, but the place I probably spent the most time in my life was Ohio. I grew up in Cleveland. Um, but spent time uh, overseas. As, um, and so I've had the experience of living in a neighborhood where I was the minority. Um, I've had the experience of being an immigrant and being a religious minority. But I do want to say before we begin that, um, you know, all of that was through a white lens and that I have um, blind spots and I have bias and I have benefit. And I may get things wrong and I may say things even today that um, you may look, wonder about what was the intentionality of the word that I chose. Um, but I, I think a lot about um, what's in our hearts and what's in our actions. And one of the things I can remember growing up, uh, particularly with my friends and, and my family, is um, you know, there's a phrase that we use a lot now, which is do better. Um, and I think a lot of us think about that and what does that mean? But growing up as a kid, I only heard do your best. And I think maybe that's um, you know the focus that I'm hoping for, and what like, one of the things that attracted me to this event and to this film was it's really about being your best 
and um, it's, which is being more than better. And so I hope that um, this conversation today um, that will be candid and potentially raw is a reflection of that desire to be my best and do what's best for this community. And I appreciate being invited. Thank you so much, Zach, Greg, and uh, Alex. It's wonderful to have the three of you here and your experience and backgrounds. We have a few questions we'd like to ask, um, but I just want to remind folks that artists create all the time, whether it's in a pandemic, whether they're making money or not. You'll find many, many artists creating. You'll find many, many artists doing the work that they're trying to achieve regardless of the income that they're making. And you'll find many, many artists being really active, especially in times of, of uh, upheaval and stress. Right now, we're living in a community that is experiencing just that. But what we hope the film does, for those of you that will get a chance to see it when it goes public, is understand the humanity and the differences that we all share and the differences that we have. It's, it's okay but that we should be kind and respectful of those differences and engage each other in the conversation. So my first question to the three of you, and you can go first, Greg, or Alejandro, why don't you go first since you're the lead between this uh, film and that. What kind of experiences have you had in 2020 related to the pandemic and has it impacted you personally? And how has it expanded your view of equity if it has across what we say diversity, inclusion, and equity. I say diversity, inclusion, equity, because it's die. Because if you try to implement this in any kind of community, you usually kill yourself trying to do it. But what kind of impact has this had on you, Alex? And then we'll go to Greg and Zach. Thank you, Mark. Um, yeah, as I kind of shared a little bit in my intro, um, we lost 90% of our work, Brave Bird. Um, so that was a significant blow. Uh, it was one of the most challenging uh, times of my career, um, very scary. And uh, we weren't sure what would happen. To be honest, um, we're in 2021 and we still haven't seen a huge rebound yet. Um, I feel like um, commerce for my vertical, which is uh, video production, creative development, has been a little slower to come back. And so um, I've basically been living on my income from 2019 for, for quite a while. Um, I'm hoping that will change soon. Um, but that still shows you how COVID has impacted me um, into today, 2021. Uh, another thing is that COVID um, impacted not just me, but um, it impacted our entire economy, our entire ecosystem of freelancers that we work with. Um, and I think that was one of the, the areas that we weren't expecting. But when I lost 90% of my work, so did all the freelancers that I work with, they lost 90% of that work. And um, so that was that was pretty tough. Um, be, one of the reasons we may trace the line, aside from it being a, a way for me to express um, and make sense of 2020, uh, was to preserve the ecosystem and, and the talented people we're working with, like Greg Hatton and um, Clint Greendeer. And there's so many other folks that we, we, we're working with, Amparo Moreno and, um, and, and we were just really trying to figure out a way, how do, we, how do we create opportunities for ourselves? Because right now the opportunity isn't coming necessarily from our economy because everyone was affected by this. Um, and so Trace the Line was a way to survive. Um, we weren't making top dollar. I, I, I wanna pay everyone um, what they're worth. You know, Greg, Greg has worked on feature films I mean, he, he, he's, he's, got, he's made tons on, on making films and, you know, for him to come to Wisconsin 
and to work um, at a significant lower rate. I mean, I'm always humbled by that and, and incredibly grateful. Um, but that also goes to everyone else that worked on the project. Um, some other ways that, that Trace the Line impacted are us, not just economically, but spiritually, psychologically. Um, I think COVID 2020, kind of an interesting year. It put a lot of things in perspective. It really lived up to its name, 2020, you know, vision. Um, basically, it, it showed some real big gaps in our economy, not just in Madison, but in our whole country. And, uh, and that was really difficult to handle. And you also throw social, social isolation and all the different inequities from racial inequity to economic inequity um, and, and so much more, right? And on top of that, we had a lot of um, political activity going on. And so it was just a very precarious season. Um, and I, I think with Trace the Lion, something that Greg and I and Noel and the writing team, I'm not the only person involved in this development of the story. Um, we were very intentional about an, uh, about scripting an original story and, and a story that didn't um, rely on, on tropes, on, on white savior tropes or um, female tropes, male tropes, you name it. We actually wanted to create something that was uh, very unique and something that was really true and authentic and helped people process what we all experienced. And um, I think that's how my lens for equity grew um, because our writing team was so diverse. Uh, Greg Hatton, who's our cinematographer, was part of the writing team. Um, the main actors in the film, um, Matthew and Brooke and Ariel Harmon and uh, Amadou Chroma, they were part of the, the, the writing team. We would pick their brains and, and run scenes by them um, just to vet them through them, um, which is a unique approach. Like it, typically in Hollywood, they hire a, a, a screenwriter, they have everything written out, and then they hire actors, the actors memorize the script, and then they go to shoot. This was more holistic, this was organic. We were all kind of pitching into this story. Um, and, and I think that was beautiful because I got to see a different perspective. I'm not a, I'm not a female and I don't identify as a woman. And, but having women on our writing team totally opened my, my perception of how to write and tell that story. I'm, I'm, I'm a very diverse person. I have um, indigenous, African, and European roots, but I didn't grow up in the African-American community. And so when I asked Greg to help me and to help me to speak to the African-American community, you know, we were able to do so through a very authentic lens. Um, and so I, I think that's how this film opened up my equity uh, perceptions, uh, Mark. Great, thank you so much. Greg, I know that you're part of the organization, so maybe you don't need to touch too much on the organizational impact of, of the of COVID and pandemic, but what about you personally? How has it kind of impacted your world as a cinematographer? Yeah, I mean, I really have to echo what Alex was talking about. The freelancing world definitely took a massive hit during uh, this time, and uh, or during 2020, and it, it affected financials, it affected personal life, in a lot of different ways because you were kind of just waiting to see what was going to happen next and i think that that was something that we all were going through we we're trying to figure out you know what's safe anymore you know what matters anymore and you know we we really got to see that like collectively we got to pause and watch the world you know we watched the world heal uh, we watched people 
you know, educated and uneducated, making good and bad decisions. We got confused by it all. Like it was a very, very trying time personally um, to kind of make sense out of what we had in front of us. Um, but it also like kind of galvanized the purpose to stand up for what you feel was right and, and not just like fight for, oh, I, I think that this is that and the other, but like really look at the social need of all of us. Like, how do I help the next person? You know, and how can I do that? Like, there's a real, you know, it, we're not an individualistic society. Like, I mean, we, we kind of are, but as uh, our human nature, we're not supposed to be doing this by ourselves. And I believe truly that this period showed us that we have to work together in order to survive. And, and outside of just survival, but we can look at this project, for example, you know, it, like Alex was describing, it would not have existed if we didn't come together as a team and just like, hey, what can we do together to, to get through this, to talk about this subject, to, to, to kind of heal and to use the skills that we have, you know, I mean, I guess that's the, the, the function of craft is to actually know how to do something and create something with that. Like if I'm a carpenter, I know to, to take wood and I can turn it into a table for you to eat your food on. You know, so as a cinematographer, as a storyteller, we know how to use a camera and we know how to put these things together to show you something that might be beneficial. And that responsibility rang louder than anything during 2020. It's like, we really have to see what we're able to do to affect change and help everybody, not just the people next to you. I mean, I wasn't in Madison, Wisconsin. When all this happened, Alex called me. I was, you know, I'm in Hawaii. Um, and it was a challenge to to jump on the plane and go to Madison uh, during that time. COVID numbers were high. Political unrest was crazy. George Floyd had just gotten killed. And I've been, you know, as an African-American man, you know, just dealing with all the weight that was going on with that. I mean, I'm still dealing with it. And, you know, it, it, to really choose to do something, to say something that needs to be heard or you know, just to share a thought, you know, to open up that the exposure to more people like there that that purpose really burned through for me. And I think that going forward in my life, my photography work and my cinematography, it's all about putting, you know, exposing more people, as many people as possible to the realities of life on this planet while we have it. The beauties, the horrors, the just everything to try to help people see more of what life is rather than you know, these romanticized, um, you know, ideas of what life could be or, or you know, these, there's, there's a lot of that. And I think we need to get back to, you know, what really makes us human and what really ties us together. So I think the biggest thing that came out of this period was, was kind of a call to action to really engage with people and, and share with people and, you know, humble even your own ego in times to hear the other person because that's when that perspective starts to shift. That's when you can actually make decisions based off of um, off of knowledge instead of instead of you know ego and gut emotion. So that was wow. really the biggest thing. That's a powerful statement. Thank you so much. Well, and we know that in the arts world, most artists who are creating and impacted by the pandemic lost their income, but also worked second or third jobs in the service industry, which was equally decimated. So they were been very, very difficult to sustain their life livelihood. And the interesting thing for me is that we were able to provide a million dollars 
to 400 artists, $2,500 each in COVID relief funds for them just to pay a bill. And what do most of them do? Work on a next project where they can put that money into. I said, pay a bill, man. Go out to dinner, do something for yourself. I got a project I want to do. I want to buy this, I want to buy that. So you let them do as they will because they are artists. But I want to go to the industry now, Zach, that you as a business leader in our community uh, see from a different lens uh, the impact of the pandemic and COVID-19 and and the artivism that's coming out of it. And I'd be curious to hear your reaction to how it's impacted your work uh, personally and professionally and if it's expanded anyway, uh, relations to equity. Yeah, thanks for the question. And, I, and I, I'm glad that I, I went third um, because I, I think that everything that Alex and Greg said um, puts a, 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 you know, a ribbon around what the moment was like, but also what, you know, excites me about this project, which was we made a decision. It was March, early March. We knew it was coming and we knew we were going to have to start to figure out what, what would be next. And the history of the chamber is that 110 years ago, business leaders in this community got together and asked the question that said, what can we do better together? Or what can we do through coordinated action that we could never do on our own? We're competitors, we compete for talent, we compete for, you know, for markets, we compete for, for jobs. Um, what can we do together? Set aside the competition and work together. And I asked the team, um, do we hunker or do we move? And a lot of organizations chose to hunker, and I don't blame any organization that chose to do that. Um, everybody had to make their own decision. We had the blessing of a century of resources, so we had 24 months of sustainability. We, we literally could have continued to pay our bills and and um, not received another additional dollar and survived for two years. And when you have that benefit, when you have that privilege, you have a responsibility then to make sure that you're doing the work in the community and so what we did is we immediately asked the question that I said in the beginning is, how do we do our best? What is our, not just a little bit better, how do we, what would best look like? Um, and we're a membership organization, so we are a closed network. Um, it's been that way and all chambers are that way. We turned everything outward. So every bit of communication, every bit of research, everything that we did, we turned outward. Anyone could sign up for our, for our communications. We did nightly communications. Any organization, the Latino chamber, the black chamber, uh, the LGBT chamber, uh, any any local chamber, any organization, uh, deemed by local, could have access to all of our research, all of our communications, but delabeled. So you know, we said it'd be, we would appreciate if you re reference that where you got it from, but if your membership would be better served by stripping out our name and just putting in the text, do it because it's more important that you communicate than and that we communicate. Um, you know, we. Uh, we got started early with virtual events like this, and then we opened up our experiences and our platforms to others to say, you know, we'll tell you everything we learned. Uh, we'll tell you how to do it. We'll sit down with you. We'll help you think it through. We, we are, we're fortunate to have people on our team that have worked in Congress, that have worked in the state legislature, the governor's office, the Baldwin office, the Obama office, the Clinton campaign, and we took all that collective uh, brain power and said, let's analyze and understand not just what's happening today, because that's where everybody was in that moment of crisis, which was the relief phase. So many people were focused on relief. But what, is, what, does, it what, it looks, what does it look like if we forecast out what the future would be? And is, what does reopening look like? And maybe more importantly, what does recovery look like? And then what does an equitable recovery look like? And we knew, we knew early on that the recovery was not going to be equitable. Even before you heard anything about K-shaped recoveries, and we started, you know, and so when we went out to lobby, you know, we went to the 
to the city and said, we need to start thinking about equitable recovery. Like, I understand that the crisis of the moment is just combating and relief of the, of the, of the virus, but what does recovery look like? And the answer that we got was we, are, we can't. We're so focused on the moment of crisis. So we did it. We formed, you know, we set up an entire platform, an entire communication structure, weekly meetings with all of our economic partners to say, we, we won't forget about relief, but we're not going to lose sight of what an equitable recovery is going to look like. When we lobbied and, you know, to Mark, your, your, uh, your boss, Joe Parisi, called me one day and said, what do you think we should do? Where should we put? I have very finite resources. Where should we put it? And I said, childcare. And he said, what, is childcare like a big member of yours? And I said, they, I think we have two childcare organizations out of 1,300 members. But if we don't save childcare, the rest of the infrastructure will fall apart. And you know the same thing with restaurants, and it's not a big part of our membership, but we spent a lot of time thinking about how do we help uh, restaurants, and I, um, how do we think, how do we help businesses that are owned by entrepreneurs of color that we have spent collectively all this energy to build and to support and to accelerate the risk of wiping all that out in one fell swoop in one twelve-month period uh, weighed heavy on us. And then I would say, um, you know, the we had a program called Propel which was an entrepreneurial program uh, where we took one uh, entrepreneur of color, in this case happened to be an artist, um, and we incubated them for 18 months and that their 18 months was during the pandemic. And it would have been very easy to say, I'm sorry, the pandemic's here. We just don't have time to, to do the entrepreneur in residence program. But we followed through with it and got them to the end of that fellowship um, and helped them launch their, their, product, their project and invested almost $20,000 in new equipment so that they could create cinematic level quality uh, production. And then I uh, finally, I'll say um, something that we have not talked a lot about because I want to make sure we do the work before we talk about it. But I will just because I want the hundred or so people on, on today's broadcast to know um, the things where our brain is as an organization. We launched a project called DHEI. And yet, Mark, you use the, the acronym DIE. Um, we chose DHEI as the acronym. And I'll explain to you why. Um, for those of you who are Spanish speakers, you know that DHEI is personal sense of said, so yo dije, I said. And so it's a project, it's a platform, it's not a project, it's a platform for keeping our word and doing what we say we're gonna do. But as an acronym, it's diversity, inclusion, justice, and equity. And the reason why justice is in there is because it's a question that we should all ask ourselves is can justice be a business term? Diversity is a business term has been for two decades. Inclusion is a business term has been for at least 12, 14 years. Equity in the last five or six years has become more of a business term. Can justice be an, a, a business term or is it just us? Is that how business thinks about themselves? And that goes back to what Greg said about, are we an individualistic, are we a me society or a we society? Um, and so the, you're gonna see a lot coming from us in, in the coming uh, months and years that refocuses, it opens the aperture to think about the economy different and refocuses our priorities on making sure that we truly build a just economy, not just an inclusive or diverse economy. Whoa, as we say, Senor Andale Pues Mirapaya, that's really great to hear because uh, chambers traditionally across the country don't have the greatest relationship with communities of color. And I'm glad to hear that you, Zach, are making the effort to be more inclusive in that effort. And I think we're recording this, right? Is that right, uh, Alex? This is being recorded. so. I appreciate you saying that, Zach, which is great to hear because uh, we really want to work more closely with the business community, you know, because the business community really has great impact in our communities here related to economics, diversity, access, inclusion, um, 
So I know that Marie, Marie and Johnny Justice, I believe, were your cinematographers that were in residence. Uh, so I appreciate that. And if there's any way Dane Arts can continue to help you grow that, I'm, I would be welcome to talk with you later. I mean, I, just for the record, uh, County Executive Parisi never calls me. So I just want you to know that they gave you a call. So so as we move on to the second question about what's going on, you know, a lot of what's happened has made us all pretty uncomfortable. How do we address some of these issues? How do we talk across divisions? How do we talk across arenas? We have so many differences in our communities and the animosity just seems to be growing more and more, but it's really been very difficult to create these kind of bridges that we need to create. But how do anyone, anyone who can talk, Greg, uh, Zach, or Alejandro, how do we create this relationship to being uncomfortable, you know, and, and get to a point where we can have these conversations about tough social issues, about injustices? And by the record, it was Richard Pryor who said, just us, when he talks about justices. But how do we create these kind of environments where we can discuss these issues because i always say in order as a person of color in this country in order to be comfortable we got to move through being uncomfortable the only way to get to being comfortable is working through uncomfortable and most people of color born in this country have now at my age at least understand that and we can work in many different communities but i want to know from you the three panelists you know how do we work through being comfortable in these uncomfortable situations Anyone? I mean, I, I let me say, I you know, I I think if you are not if you're white and you're not uncomfortable in this work, you're not doing the work. Um, and I think it's a it's about finding comfort in the uncomfortness. I think the flip side of that is is that community of colors um, have to uh, be willing to meet uh, people where they're at and realize that not everybody's journey has started, not everybody's journey is. Um, headed in the right direction or they have the right lived experiences to be able to to even be an ally or to you know to to be a co-conspirator whatever the word that we want to use but that alignment's going to matter um, and you can see my own uncomfort even though I have you know experiences that I feel give me empathy and adjacency to be able to understand and want to do the work uh, I have an uncomfortableness. I have. It's why I said in the beginning. I hope that when if I say something that doesn't ring true to your ear based on your lived experience, that you'll give me grace and understand that we're that the work needs to be done. And I, I truly believe we. I'll tell you another thing that we have not said publicly. So I'm saying a whole bunch of stuff I probably shouldn't be saying publicly. But I'll. We quietly convened more than 60 CEOs um, to have a conversation about DHA, about what is it, where is it going. But I also checked in with the practitioners in DEI in the community and asked their thoughts on it. And the universal phrase or the universal question I heard is, let me get this straight. You're gonna, you're gonna convene the most powerful people in our community to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. And you know they're all gonna be white and most of them are gonna be male and most of them are gonna be 55 and older male. And so how are you ever gonna get an answer that's ever gonna be have any kind of relationship to communities of color? And my response is, I agree. But I also agree that if white people don't do this work, particularly if white men don't do this work, it's not going to get done. And I and that's not to say that it's not because of the passion and the labor and the, the talent and the wisdom of communities of color. But it's just in order to do this, we all have to be doing it. And so to me, it's white men in particular have to find a level of a level of uncomfortableness and then find comfort in that and realize that we're going to get some stuff wrong, but we're going to get hopefully more right than we get wrong in the long term. 
Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can, you know, <clears throat> excuse me. One thing that I can try to offer is like, if we can change our, our perception on what this uncomfortability is. And I, I you know, I kind of look at our lives, like we're all human beings and I, I'm gonna always talk about life whenever I'm talking about anything. But if you look at babies, right? When babies first start out, you know, they don't just start running. They have to learn how to crawl. They have to learn their balance. It's a very difficult time. It's not difficult to them because they're just going through the motion. If you take that model and put it into anything that we've ever done, any, any one of us on this panel, any one of us listening, the beginning is always the uncomfortable part. Always. There's nothing that you hop into and all of a sudden it's just working, especially when it involves self-work or anything like that especially if it means standing up for something when you're in a room of people who are, you know, saying something different, you know, like it, there's never an instance that you're just going to just come into something and it's going to be easy. It's just not going to be that way. So we have to look at these uncomfortable things and start looking more towards what the end goal is and why it's there and, and why we're doing what we're doing. You know, it, it's kind of interesting. I was just talking to, um, our, uh, one, the actor in the film, Matthew Bogart. Uh, and we were talking about, you know, just activism and, and the need to stand up and say something and people that boycott and choose not to do anything at all because like, they're not gonna listen to me anyway. I'm not gonna do anything about it. And, you know, the thing that I kind of gave to him, like on the, the other side of that, I was like, you know, what, 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 where would we be if Martin Luther King said, you know what, America's not gonna change. I'm not going to go give this speech about, you know, we shall overcome. You know, like, what if he chose that that's not what's going to happen? You know, in, in the, the, the history of this country, so many people would have lost out on the opportunity to see a presentation of grace or of just understanding and compassion. That was more important than just saying, I'm not going to be involved. You know, and it was difficult to make that decision. I mean, the man, you know, he died for, you know, silly reasons. And, and there's all that kind of thing that's happened in the black community for people that are standing up to try to say something. But the need to say something, the need to do something is so apparent that even if it's difficult, I mean, we chose to make this movie with like little funding and, you know, like Alex was saying, there was a, a cast and a crew that did not know how to make a film. And, you know, it was like, but we, we have to try. We have to at least try to see what can come out of it. And we did that. And, you know, honestly, it came up a lot better than I thought originally. Like we were like, we're going to try and we're going to see what we can do, blah, 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 blah. It's going to be fun. And then we started getting into it. And as honestly, as the world kept going we saw you know COVID was tearing us all up then we saw um just the people that weren't really aware of what was happening or completely oblivious or just putting it off to the side and that was messing with our own psyches we saw George Floyd we saw Jacob Blake and it actually started to kind of give us more like we got to do this we have to do this we just have to put this thing out to see what can happen from it just to see what kind of story and you know it, it was uncomfortable to make but like, I mean, to me, that's part of it. And being a, a person of color, I'll end it with this. You know, it, it's funny because I can say this and to your point, uh, Zach, you know, the white community has largely been in a place of privilege 
And they've largely been in a place where they don't have to be uncomfortable. That's all I've ever known. As an, as an African-American, as a minority, whatever, all I, you know, I started off by talking about my, my tenure in the motorsports world. I was the, like, it, 98% of the places that I went across the planet, I was the only person that looked like me. You know, and if you don't think that that has an effect on you, you know what I mean? Like, there's a reason that when, you know, people of color see each other, black people in general, like, yeah, I see you. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, man, I, I wasn't, I'm sorry to, to go on and on. I'll just end it really quickly. But I was in Tokyo, Japan, walking down the street and I was just hanging out. And I saw this black guy come out of the, uh, come out of the, uh, the, the, the tunnel for the subway. And this dude, his eyes were huge. I had been there before. I'm pretty excited about Japan. I love the place, but he had never been. And you could just see it all over his face. And he's just like, and I'm just like standing there and I'm just watching him, eyes locked. And he, I, his eyes locked on mine and he walked straight up to me and I was like, what's going on, man? I was like, dude, I'm chilling. How are you doing today? And he's like, oh man, this place is, this, this is amazing. I was like, have you ever been here before? He's like, no, I haven't. I was like, yeah, it's pretty cool. What do you like the most about it? And my man was like, yeah, it's like, I feel like, like, I'm kind of like free to go around and people like acknowledge you and like it's it's weird it's not like that where i'm from and he was from the uk and but just like little things like that so you know it, it's it's very it's interesting to hear the uncomfortable nature that people feel when they have the ability to do stuff like most people that i work with millionaires or people with enough money they're gonna go home and have a great dinner they got their family there they got this that, and the other other side of the, the equation the people that i know going to go home and, you know, try to find something good to eat, might not have spoken to their parents, don't know where their brothers are. Like, what, so what's really uncomfortable? Like, let's, let's look at that. And if we can move through what's perceived to be uncomfortable, I mean, the hard work is at the beginning. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Alejandro, do you have anything to offer? I know we're running short on time, but do you have something to offer related to this? Yeah. Yeah, thanks guys. Uh, thanks Zach and Greg. Um, yeah, I think uh, I'm, not, I'm not after perfection. And uh, I think living in the in the United States, we're very individualistic and we just have high, high expectations for each other um, that are unsaid. Um, expectations that are sometimes unreasonable. Um, Leo Tolstoy, the author of Anna Karenina, he said, if you look for, for perfection, you'll never be content. And, um, and so for me, this whole issue is like, we, I think we need to be honest about our history um, and understand that it isn't perfect and that's okay. Um, and we can, if we don't address it, that's not okay. Um, and I think we've gone for centuries not addressing it and only operating with one narrative. And, it's, and it tells you the, the significance of narratives that they play in our lives. Um, you know, I grew up wanting to be the cowboy, and I think James Baldwin said the same thing uh, in a documentary I recently watched, where he said something like, "I didn't realize that I was the Indian, but I wanted to be the cowboy." You know, and and so it's, we we have a very unique way in this country of um, depicting black and white narratives when it's really gray, um, and we need to create more space for that to understand. Um, each other more to see where we're going, what we're coming from. I mean, we all have different experiences. I don't have the same experiences as Greg or as Zach or as you, Mark. 
um, but our experiences have formed us. Um, and I wish that we can have more dialogue as a community about our experiences. Um, I think it was Bob Marley who said, who are you to judge the life I live? You know, I, I know I'm not perfect and I don't live to be. Um, and so I, I think I really resonate with these, with, with these thoughts of like perfection. And um, as an artist, I see the process. I don't see perfection. I see a process that's constantly evolving and, and, and morphing and changing and, you know, I'll go one direction and it turns into something completely different. That happened with Trace the Line. Working with Greg, Greg pushed me so much and so far, you know, like I had a certain idea, but then when, when I opened up that concept and shared it with Greg and Noel and Ariel and Matthew and, and Brooke, it became so much bigger than what I could have imagined. And I, and I just feel like it, it's a testament to maybe what we need to do as a, as a, as a community. Um, when we operate with our silos, within silos, we, we can't really see too far. And when you open that up, you can see further. Um, I just, I recently watched In the Heights and I've never seen a film that depicted so many people who looked like me on screen. And I can't tell you, when I walked away from that movie, how blessed, how encouraged and inspired I was. And then when I started to read in the newspaper, um, some of the the, the 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 negatives of the film, um, you know, it, it was very conflicting for me um, because I saw so much diversity in the film and yet they didn't hit the mark. But one thing that they did really well was admit it, you know, they came out right away um, and they were just as a team, they were like, you know, we could have done better and they're ready to do better on the next one. And, and, you know, and that was so healthy because we can't be afraid of this. We cannot be afraid to fail. We cannot be afraid to be imperfect. We, we have to go out there and do our best. And if we do that, we keep pushing the, the needle little by little. We keep evolving. We keep getting better and better and better. And um, like In the Heights, inspirational film. Could have, could have been more diverse? Totally. Yes, it could have been. They, there could have been more Black representation from the Latino community in the Heights. I totally agree. But um, look what that film did. It created a conversation for colorism. You know, and, and if that film hadn't come out, I don't think we would be talking about colorism. And th this is the nuance of prejudice and, and racism, right? There's, there's nuance of racism. Um, and, and it's not always like done out of a heart of, of a nefarious spirit. Um, I think it's, it's really at the heart of ignorance. And so how do we beat ignorance? We have to have dialogue. We have to grow our wisdom, right? We, we need to have more knowledge. Um, and how do we do that? I think the arts really helps with that. You see, I think the arts is a space to really open up our minds. But yeah, I don't want to keep talking. I know we have more questions you probably want to share, Mark. Those were just some some thoughts that I, I have on, on the question. Well, you're absolutely right. The arts are the answer. The arts are certainly one solution to the problems that we face because the more we practice, the better engaged we become in understanding other cultures, uh, as well as gender, uh, uh, race, uh, world issues, uh, social services, education, health, wellness. It's all a part of what the arts really generate for our communities. And we are running out of time, but I want just one last question from the three of you, if you want to just be brief on some of your suggestions on what can be done with our audience that is attending today. What can they do to better move the needle, so to speak, to become more 
at more, more of an advocates for equity, inclusion, diversity. And I know diversity right now we're referring to mostly cultural demographics versus gender or age or other components of diversity. But what do you suggest for our members who are participating and listening today on what they might be able to do on their end? Anyone? Greg, Zach? Yeah, mute, bro. Okay, briefly, I, I can just, you know, that thing about changing the perception and looking kind of inward and see how the things that you do in your own homes uh, translate to the, the community in large, you know, like how do you interact with your family members and how do you inter interact with your coworkers and how do you interact with just your group of friends? And, you know, put a mirror on that because everybody that you run across has the same setup. I mean, we're all the same people. We're all trying to do the same thing. You know, how many people that you see at a restaurant that don't look like you, but they love the same food you love. I mean, it's really that simple, you know? So really like, if you look at what you would, you know, what you'd imagine for yourself, you know, and see why would you deny that of anybody else? Like, it, you know, it's it's really a self-reflection thing that needs to happen. Art can do that, um, but there's a lot of responsibility that comes in them. We just have to face it. We have to engage with one another. We have to engage with ourselves and we have to quiet the ego down to do that. Beautiful. Alejandro, Zach, do you have anything to offer for the members listening today? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll go ahead, Zach. If you can, you can, you can close it out. Um, yeah, I, you know, we. Um, how do I say this? Like, I think there, there's a line in the film from one of the main actors that says, "I don't make art in a vacuum," and and I really feel like that's a kindred line to my life. Is like I don't make films in a vacuum. Like, I need to be surrounded by people. Um, who care about what I'm trying to do as a filmmaker, but also care about um, the future of narrative, the future of storytelling. And so one ways that you can help, you know, help us, like this is a grassroots effort. Like we are operating outside of Hollywood. Um, Wisconsin isn't known for the entertainment industry. Um, you know, so we really made this film with a community effort. And we, I remember presenting this movie um, to Madison community before we even went into production. And I, I, I did a, an early dialogue, I had an early conversation like this, Mark, and we introduced Brooke and we introduced Matthew, we introduced their poetry, we introduced their visual arts. And then I introduced and invited the, the audience to partake in the development of this story. And like, hey, this is what we're trying to do. And this is why it's important. Um, and I gotta tell you, as an artist, it can be super discouraging. Like, you know, you don't know how many no's I have received, you know? Like, I I think most of my life is just like getting no's <laughs> and then finding the will to still persevere, right? Um, and, and Greg even mentioned earlier, like I grew up in an industry where I didn't see many people who looked like me and so, Sometimes you can feel alone and isolated. So one way to help and or to be involved, to get involved is to join a community, like join the arts, join the artists. I mean, we do art not to just hide it in a closet. We make art so that others can enjoy it. And if you wanna enjoy the art, I, I mean, I welcome you, come, 
come and see, look at what we're doing, meet the people, meet, meet the concept, you know, and, um, and then another way is practically to trace the line. Um, feel free to follow us on our social networks. Um, we are still trying to fundraise. Um, I've been fundraising for Trace the Line since 2020, since May of 2020. Um, my goal is to personally pay everyone who worked on this project, which originally started with less than 10 people, has now evolved into over 45 people spanning from Hawaii, where Greg's at, all the way to Madrid in Spain, where our coloring team is at. Um, so now we have, we, we and we did this in, in, during COVID, during social isolation, you know, I, I think it's a little miracle what we did here, where we're, we're creating a community and we're inviting you, the viewers, to also come and be part of this community because this isn't my story anymore. This is our story. Uh, trace the line is a universal concept. It's not about me anymore. It goes beyond that. It's tracing the line of our shared humanity. Um, and so how can you be involved? Yeah, support your local artists. Get to know them. We want to get to know you. Um, for Trace the Line, follow us on social media. We are still raising funds. You can um, support us fiscally through Arts Wisconsin, um, and you can visit our website. And then um, also, like, Trace the Line is about activating other artists. Um, so we don't want it to just be about us. We want this to be a platform for other artists to evolve and grow. So please feel free to get to know them, get to know Matthew, get to learn about Brooke um, and support their art. Thanks, Mark. Sorry, I went off on a little tangent there. All right. Zach, you want to close it out for us? And I will. Uh, Henry Sanders uh, recently said in a meeting I was in is that being a person of color in Madison feels like always being on the away team. I think this is like it's an, an analog to what Greg was talking about in his eloquent description of of you know what it's like to to in, even in Japan. Um, and I, it occurred to me at that moment that being white may be the greatest home field advantage that we that any group of people has ever had. And if we just look at baseball teams, soccer teams, football teams, uh, basketball teams, we see it in the basketball championships. The Suns win at home. The Bucks win at home. Um, I think the answer to the question is what can you do, which is uh, do the work. Um, uncomfortable or not, it's do the work. Because imagine what a home team would look like if it actually encompassed all of us. We know the data tells us that a home team-based economy where everybody uh, enjoyed the same access to the opportunities of this community means that we have a 4x increase in our GDP. I mean, that nobody in the world could ever imagine doing a 4x increase in their GDP. And if we could just get women and uh, young girls and, and children of color to perform at the same level that we see in our school district that come from young white men who are good at math and science and come from affluent families, if they could perform at the same levels and the, everything is there that says that they, they can, there's filters that just stop it from happening. If we could break those filters down, we could multiply our economy by 4X. And then I'd say the other thing is, and this is something I'll take from Brandy Grayson, is that she and I were on a panel four or five years ago and it was towards the end and a, a very well-meaning white woman stood up in the room and said to Brandy, what can I do? What have you, why haven't you told me what I can do? And Brandy turned to her and said, you know, I'm going to let Zach answer that. And I didn't really know Brandy that well. And what I said to her was, it's not Brandy's job to invite you to the table. Right? Brandy's fighting hard enough to make sure that she's at the table. So if you're already at the table, you have a responsibility to do the work and not wait for somebody to invite you. And finally, I'll say, if you're in the business community and you're watching this, here's my advice. So I, I had a business leader say to me, well, what can I do? Just give me the one thing. There is no one thing, but if you want a list of things that you can do, you can lead, you can recruit, you can hire, you can mentor, you can promote, you can coach, you can promote again and again, 
then you can encourage entrepreneurship, you can invest, you can buy from, you can elect people of color to boards, you can work for people of color, and then you follow people of color, and then you'll have done the work to create an equitable economy. It's a pretty pretty easy format. Thank you, Zach, Greg, Alejandro. It is, it's all about the work that we all need to do. We need to do it on a daily basis. Um, and it's and it's nobody's job but your own. So thank you so much for the three of you being here this afternoon. I wasn't sure if Noelle had something she wanted to end up with, but very important information that we can all take away from. And we will look to the business community, Zach, for any kind of input and support. And for those listening, Dane Arts at danearts.com is always available to work with you because we're more than just about creating the arts. We're about using the arts as a tool to create community and a better community for us all. So thank you all for being with us. Is Noel wanting to say a few other things, uh, Alejandro? Noel um, said she's just grateful for tonight's event. Um, she's coming over. Well, this thank is you so much, everyone, this for is attending. This is tonight for you guys. This is this morning for Greg in Hawaii, and this is the afternoon for Zach and I. So thank you. Thank you, everyone, yeah. for attending. I feel like we need uh, another, like, three events to, like, unpack all of the great questions. And um, for, for those of you that have any questions, feel free to put them in the chat. We'll try and answer them after the fact. And this is just the beginning of the conversation. So thank you yeah. so much for being present um, and have a wonderful rest of your day. And, and just one little thought I want to say regarding Trace the Line. It's currently um, being submitted to many film festivals, both nationally and internationally. That's why it's not currently available and, and hasn't been public. Um, but when it is public, we cannot wait to share it with our community here in Madison. Um, and maybe we can set up something um, sooner with a, with a local community showing here, just to show our great city what we've done as a community. So thank you all for joining us tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.